Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here today with Professor Edward McDonald, Associate Professor of Canadian and Prince Edward Island History at the University of Prince Edward Island. Professor Joshua McFajian, also Assistant Professor of Environmental Humanities at uh, the University of Prince Edward Island, and Irene Novacek, who's the former director of the Institute of Island Studies. We're going to be discussing their recent collection published by McGill Queen's uh, Press, Time and a Place. An Environmental History of Prince Edward Island. All three of them are the editors for this collection. Welcome. Hi. So before we go in, dive into the prompts for Time and a Place, can you discuss a little bit uh, the selection of the cover? Well, uh, the cover always is an important part of the publication of a book, and we actually didn't have a hand in the selection of the cover, although we love the image. Uh, there's a timelessness about the image of you know, the driftwood tree on the shore, but it was chosen by the coordinating editor for the project at the time, Joan Sinclair. And uh, she found it and we loved it and so did their designers. Yeah, the, co- the photo was really just an example of one of the many things that Joan brought to the project. We're very much indebted to her. Uh, she found it, I believe, on Flickr and contacted the uh, photographer, who was quite happy to share it. So you introduced the collection by noting that in 2010, most of the authors set out to write a coherent collection of essays at a conference dubbed Time and a Place, Environmental Histories, Environmental Futures, and Prince Edward Island. Why did you set out to write such a collection? Well, the idea for Time and a Place came from uh, Dr. Alan McKechn. Um, with the idea that we can learn from the past in order to guide our our future. And um, we designed a conference that was was very experiential. It took an entire week. Uh, We uh, we housed people on campus and uh, limited the number of persons who could participate so that we could load them all onto buses and literally take them out to farm fields, take them to the beach, uh, take them to small museums, uh, to uh, indigenous uh, community, to a rural community hall, to the national park, to the parabolic dunes. We we stuffed them full of lobster and rolled them into an historic (laughs) hall up on the Missouri shore. Um, we introduced our participants to fishers and farmers and uh, uh, elders in the Mi'kmaq community, uh, to artists and poets and historians. Um, and so they, the interactions were, were, were very rich and lively and, uh, and prolonged. People lived in one another's pockets for an entire week. Um, and you know, how, how do you capture uh, what you learn? I mean, you, 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 obviously you have to write something down. You have to 
developed some sort of a book. Um, we as editors took on the, the challenge of, of selecting the authors of different <clears throat> uh, chapters so that we could cover um, the full sort of panoply of, of environmental history, but also bring in all these different voices. Um, we had, uh, you know, government people, um, uh, environmentalists, uh, classic historians and ecologists and uh, all sorts <clears throat> uh, with, with, with and, and, and island studies people as well with their own angles on the environmental history of Prince Edward Island. And, and um, so we worked very hard to, to bring together a rich volume and to connect all these dots as editors, uh, but also to provide a rich resource for, for regular citizens of Prince Edward Island who were you know, challenged by um, environmental issues and want to challenge their government. The one thing that made Prince Edward Island the right place to do this is that we have our own jurisdictional status. So we have our own laws and regulations with respect to the environment. And those are, there's a synopsis table at the end of the book about that. There is a very, a whole quarter of the book is endnotes and references and, and uh, this um, a table of environmental um, uh, laws and regulations that have been developed often too late uh, to save particular species or or environments. So uh, we wanted it to be an engaging book that regular folk could pick up, learn from, and wield <laughs> as a tool to to push organizations and governments in the direction that they wanted to see this province go. You know, Ryan, we're in the middle of an election right now, and there was a, a forum the other evening of all of our leaders, our political leaders. This book was actually referenced in that forum. And that makes us happy, not because we're vain, but because that's why we did the book, so that it could be useful to islanders in charting their future and useful to people from outside the island in seeing how this sort of thing works. So on that note, can you elucidate your contention that time and a place are inextricably bound when it comes to environmental history and that larger insights can come from examining environmental change in one well-defined place? In addition, why is environmental history a house with many rooms? And how is this a book about connectedness and disconnectedness? Okay. Well, that's a bundle of questions. Um, <laughs> but let's start by talking about time and a place. Um, you know, there was a school of history, which was called an Annal School of History. And it had the conviction that you could only really understand the history of a place if you looked at the long sweep of history. And certainly environmental history fits that as a category. To fully understand how we get to now, we have to traverse that tangle sort of the landscape of our history, the thousands of years that we have been occupied by the species that we belong to. And so time and place go together. And our conviction is that if you put time and a place into a bundle, 
then you can glean more insights than if you took a narrow view in terms of time or a broad view in terms of place. So that's part of the conception that Alan had that led to the conference that led to the book. Yeah, I'll just jump in there and say that you know, environmental history has been traditionally, in many cases, a form of place history. It was born out of historical geography, although it's become a, a sort of larger tent since then. And uh, this was this was kind of one of those an acre of land, except it's about a million acres of land, and we're uh, giving it a sustained treatment over time with these uh, with these various disciplines. And so, when I say it's a bigger tent, you know, your question about a house with many rooms is really that um, environmental history is interdisciplinary. Um, you know, it requires knowledge and tools from outside of history. We can't just kind of visit the archives. We need to know more about um, ecology and more about environmentalism as a movement and more about uh, agriculture, fisheries, especially in this case. Uh, and, and beyond that, it, it also uses methods that are from outside of history. And, Quite often, that means we need specialists who who are expert in those methods, and so this book includes far more than historians. We have archaeologists, biologists, uh, um, foresters, uh, and so many of them were kind of writing history for the first time, but all of them had uh, a lot of research already done in historical work, and so it's it's quite a feat that they came together and everybody uh, wrote this book that hangs together really nicely. Um, and it has some, some real consistency of argument, but still many different methods and many different specialties. Um, and that's the kind of interdisciplinarity of it. The, um, the idea of an island as well as a microcosm or as you know, a laboratory, a case study, it's something Graham Wynne uh, brings up in one of the chapters that opened the book, but it's also a traditional way of using islands they glean, you can glean insights by looking at islands about that island, but you also have, in many cases, a self-contained sort of universe that you can use as a case study. So we think intrinsically this province should be important to islanders, but also it does offer a case study uh, in the methodologies and in the approach, the perspective. Maybe I'll add one last thing to say that the book is actually part of a series at McGill Queen's University Press called the Rural, Wildland, and Resource Studies Series. And as such, we were really happy to have it included in that. Um, it was inspired by a rural historian, Don Akinson, in uh, Ontario, um, and who, who wrote a collection called the Canadian Papers in Rural History. And so this was a nice fit because Prince Edward Island is, is very rural and primary resource province. Uh, and so we were able to dig deep into its, uh, into its various land uses and, and environments and study how they changed over time. Well, the final part of your question was one about you know, connectedness, um, disconnectedness as well as connectedness. And Josh, as I recall, wrote that part of the introduction, um, but it makes the point that an island has a clear set of um, the borders and boundaries that give it a sense of self and definition. This island, especially for much of its history, is was isolated in the winter time, uh, with virtually no way to communicate with the outside world. So, in some ways, 
it was isolated. But the same sea that was a barrier in the winter was a highway in the summer. And so as an island, we were connected to the whole world. So that trope of connectedness and then at times when we're not connected is an interesting frame for looking at the topics that we tackle in the book. And John Gillis in his introductory chapter really hits on the, the coast as an ecotone or a place of ecological continuum instead of disconnecting our barrier. So let's explore the uh, Graham Wynn essay for a second. How and why did Lucy Maud Montgomery's novels, Andrew Clark's 1959 Three Centuries in the Island, uh, catonic connections between Sir Andrew McPhail's The Master's Wife, as well as the 1970s Back to the Land movement, in addition to the to shifts in Prince Edward Island political economy, how did they all feature tropes of islands as laboratories and islands as museums that you mentioned earlier? Well, mainly to say that we are not the first people to really focus on and take an interest in the island uh, and its uh, and its environments, right? Uh, so Lucy Maud Montgomery, one of Canada's most famous authors, has is just full of kind of um, early uh, literary um, landscape uh, writing, and, and Anna Green Gables, her most famous book, uh, is kind of drenched with uh, with the descriptions of the land through the eyes of Bjorn and Anne. Um, but since then, there have been many other writers, uh, and Andrew McPhail, uh, one example. Um, but then coming up into the sort of 1970s, the island drew the attention of a lot of people from outside the region. And those were, uh, they were particularly interested in how, how this island, again, could be used as a laboratory or used as a study for sustainability and they wouldn't use those terms uh, so so specifically or not as we use them today but they were interested in self-sufficiency in energy um, uh, self-sufficiency and resilience in rural um, rural community building and, and that sort of thing so Graham Wynn's chapter has a lot of uh, covers a lot of these kind of key moments in the island's history including Andrew Clark's famous uh, historical geography Three centuries on the island, which is in some ways we think of as kind of a uh, part one of this story, where we've written the the follow up piece that was much needed. Yeah, and I think that all of these works, and including ours, um, really hinge on the the benefit of doing this type of study on a small island, because the limits to resources are so immediate and clearly identifiable to anyone. I mean, you can walk across this island. You know where its limits are. There are no vast plains or vast lakes. There is a vast ocean um, around it, which is, uh, as Ed points out, both a barrier and uh, an opportunity. Um, but when you when you uh, consider the history on such a um, a clearly limited geographic space, it makes global issues human scale. It allows people to grapple with them without leaving themselves out. It is very easy for us to think about climate change and say, "Oh, it's too big. Oh, I can't do anything." 
Um, therefore, I will just carry on doing exactly what I'm doing and hope for the best. But if you're on an island and living in a house and the ocean is about to take it away, you can't ignore that. The other aspect to this, Ryan, of course, is that, as Irene had mentioned earlier, this island happens to be a province with a government and jurisdiction that gives it a certain amount of agency, which other small islands do not have. So there are uh, the way of casting an island imaginatively is, again, a familiar one for people who study islands, islands as refuge, islands as a utopia, but islands as prison, islands as a museum where uh, the world slows down and, and you've got a way of life preserved. Uh, that's an imaginative trope rather than a reality, but it makes islands fascinating for people. And the jurisdictional power, as well as the manageable size, as well as the you know, lesson of limits, makes an island, and this island especially, has made it a popular place for case studies and experimentation, whether that's from energy uh, kind of viewpoints or whether that's from you know, kind of a you know, political perspective. But it does make it an excellent place to do a case study. On that note, can you discuss David Kinley's sites and Helen Christmason's archaeological evidence of continuities as well as changes in Middle Woodland societies vis-a-vis -vis Paleo-Indian and archaic cultures um, across the island? And what do the point of view and Red Bank archaeological sites reveal about Mi'kmaq survi survivance and persistence during the 18th century? Well, we made a, a conscious effort to reach back into um, pre-recorded history, uh, both in this chapter and in the chapter that I that I wrote, um, uh, because to understand the limits of our resources and and what those resources are, and how we have interacted with them over time, it it is humbling. I think, and and necessary to um, look at the the origins of these so-called resources that we tend to think of as being here simply for the use of God-given humans, as opposed to all species, um, and but also to acknowledge that this island is unceded uh, Indigenous territory. Um, we were careful to include Mi'kmaq people in our in our conference for that very reason. We started with with ceremony, and um, uh, the the Kingly side and Christmanson chapter was an essential one for us to to include in this volume uh, to acknowledge uh, the first people who occupied this land in the post glacial period. Um, and are still here. And are still here. Are very much still here. And and who are increasingly active in environmental issues and activist with respect to land and sea. Um, so we have the the, 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 the post-glacial paleo uh, period where Amerindian peoples 
probably following herds of caribou. They were um, herder hunters and uh, um, hunting on top of glaciers um, initially. And uh, so, I mean, this place where we are sitting today was was covered by an immense, extraordinarily heavy <laughs> uh, glacier, so immense that it that it actually pushed the Earth's crust down. And so, um, as the glaciers retreated and and people moved in, well, they would have found a, a, a landscape scraped bare by by the movement of glaciers. But also endowed and enriched with with these um, uh, mobile herds of, of caribou, and and the very beginnings of of um, renewed life on on the land. Um, they were uh, hunters who who used uh, uh, throwing spears, and so they the evidence that they left behind are these fluted uh, spear points. Initially, we know that the, they had. They used fire to heat and, and crack rocks to make these spear points. They, um, <clears throat> they introduced rocks from, from, that were sourced from the Bay of Fundy, brought them to Prince Edward Island and cracked them and used them, shaped them into, into tools. Uh, they also used uh, the cobbles left behind by the, in the wake of the glaciers. And um, <clears throat> they, they camped along... Uh, Along the shores of, of water, whether that was uh, marine or, or fresh water. And in the archaic period, in the 10,000 to 3,000 year ago period, you see some continuity of, um, of hunting uh, as, as, a, as a way of life, but, but the, the archaeological artifacts shift as people. Uh, adjust their technologies, go to triangular spear points, sometimes with barbs. Um, so if you are an archaeologist, you can, you can date these things, you can recognize these subtle shifts in, uh, in, in the way people napped um, rocks. And, and they also started to, to grind uh, rocks to make other kinds of art, uh, artifacts, including ornaments made from, from stone. Um, and they were mobile in, in, in dugout canoes. And they were still bringing, by this time, basalts from the Bay of Fundy, as well as rhyolites from Cape Breton Islands. So they were, they were um, migratory people. They covered a lot of territory. They transported um, their uh, resources of rocks for tool making from what we see as one province now, but from one island or, or, or mainland uh, to another. <clears throat> now, the Mi'kmaq people come in in the maritime woodland period, um, recognizably Mi'kmaq people, and they're still <clears throat> hunting. They're also gathering. Uh, shellfish has become more of an item in their, in their diet. Birds and small mammals um, have, you know, uh, also migrated into the territory and become uh, resources to to the people. Uh, they've uh, uh, set aside their very heavy dugout canoes in favor of of um, uh, canoes made of birch bark or animal hides. This makes them uh, portable across lands and uh, across portages. They're, they've started to trade further afield. We have artifacts from. Labrador Inu entering the 
the um, <clears throat> the, the uh, archaeological record. They're using bows and arrows as well as throwing spears. They're making pots uh, and they're napping with plants. Um, and uh, that is uh, the kind of hunter-gatherer lifestyle that they were pursuing, migratory lifestyle that they were pursuing when the French appeared on the shores. Uh, now we have um, an archaeological site at Pointe-au-Vieux. It is a French site. You see evidence there in the form of glass beads that indicate that the French and Mi'kmaq were trading with each other. They were amicable. They were they were supportive of one another to some degree. Um, they weren't uh, at war with each other. They were they were exchanging goods and possibly services. Um, but when you look at the <clears throat> the following British period, uh, by then the British Crown had sent out Samuel Holland, who had divided the land up into lots, which were sold to absentee landlords. And the landlords sent tenant farmers to cut down the forests, the, 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 the homes of the Mi'kmaq people, um, to destroy their homes, to, to move them off the land, to cordon off the land, to make it impossible for them to travel through the land in the way that they always did, and to shut them away from the resources upon which they depended. Uh, they introduced diseases that that uh, that killed many, many of a large proportion of the Mi'kmaq people, and um, uh, there followed the Indian Act and and the confinement of Mi'kmaq people to to small reservations where they were fully expected to simply go extinct. And so this is a period of extreme hardship and difficulty for the Mi'kmaq, and that that shows up in. Um, the Red Bank Pigot Farm site, where Mi'kmaq are essentially squatters um, tolerated by the tenant farmers uh, to have their, their, their small wigwams um, on land that was by then appropriated and claimed by, by British people. And their what? artifacts are, are a combination of, of their own technologies and and technologies that have been adopted and adapted from uh, the goods that the settlers brought. So the Mi'kmaq have abandoned their own ceramics in favor of of pottery imported from the British Isles. They have um, started using shards of glass to to uh, make weapons for hunting instead of um, uh, depending on the much more probably time-consuming uh, tasks of, of napping stone. So if you, you, you see um, the lesson for us environmentally uh, of that sort of you know, narrative arc that Irene's been able to outline, um, Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, who are adapting to climate change in the early history, the prehistory. And then they have to adapt to the habitat change that results from the European settlement on Prince Edward Island. There is a period of interchange and interaction 
where indigenous cultures get to pick and choose what works best for them from what the Europeans have. But once the land is alienated, once settlers arrive in large numbers, the environment that the native peoples are using to live, survive, and, and to adapt to changes incredibly rapidly. And archaeologically, you see the effects of that, effects of environmental change on their ability to maintain their culture. So it's, it's a telling story in the archaeological record. Why did the heterogeneity and the geographic distribution of hardwood and coniferous forests, in addition to clearance for farms, the timber trade, fire and shipbuilding, all spur deforestation and degradation across Prince Edward Island? What about the fur trade and wildlife habitats? Yeah, I, I can speak to that. Unfortunately, I'll just do a, a brief uh, summary and do sort of too little justice to what's a wonderful work by Douglas Sobey in his chapter, which is really just a summary of 20 years of research that he's been conducting on Prince Edward Island forests, and it's continued even since then. But um, one thing that he was able to do, he's a biologist, but he was he worked with foresters and, and worked with the forest data and forest surveys and inventories of Prince Edward Island, and was able to show that, you know, the heterogeneity of uh, the island's forest. It's primarily an Acadian forest ecosystem of, uh, of mixed species, but it's really determined uh, and shaped in many ways more by the soil's, um, the soil's uh, drainage rather than its uh, parent material or the soil quality. So the, so the parent material is mostly the same across the island, but the drainage is quite different. So in some places, based on slope and elevation and, and uh, density, soil it's it's a uh, it's much uh, wetter in the kind of lowland eastern parts uh, sorry western parts uh, which is a very boggy area and then uh, in parts of the east there's some sort of very steep highlands that don't uh, that that have also attracted softwood so it's basically the islands divided um, between a kind of softwood and, and hardwood groupings and in his chapter he was uh, Doug, Doug Selby really shows that you know the, the predominant hardwoods were red maple, sugar maple, um, these upland hardwood forests also had a lot of white birch, balsam fir. Um, then there's also the softwood predominant predominant in the softwood areas which which had a lot of, they were called wet rich woodland uh, which had a lot of white spruce, um, some balsam fir, tamarack uh, was also very important. And so those were the three, those were the three, uh, sort of, and the third one was a black spruce forest. And those three groupings of, of forest types were what he called the kind of first or less disturbed forest types. And then there was a second or uh, secondary forest type, which was much more disturbed. And that was really the, the white spruce uh, forest. And, and what happens on Prince Edward Island is that uh, as, as land was abandoned, which is the kind of general story of, of land use in the 20th century across Eastern North America, but particularly in the Maritimes with a lot of uh, settler migration, which we can talk about later. But um, as, as land is abandoned, it really quickly reverts to white spruce first, and then a successional forest continues from there with more shade tolerant species growing uh, beneath them. But, um, but he was able to show how that heterogeneity was uh, both from soil, uh, but also from, from harvesting type. And so you mentioned shipbuilding, 
that was really uh, that was a, was a major driver in especially those wet softwood forests, and, and those were um, heavily harvested for the shipbuilding industry starting in especially the 17th or 16 uh, 1820s, sorry, up until the end of the 19th century. And uh, they were producing uh, the, the island's really most important economy in the in the 19th century, which was, which was for ships. Um, they really kind of top graded or harvested all of the, the very high value tall um, pine, which were used for masts, and uh, and and there wasn't much wasn't much of that left by the middle of the 19th century. Um, in the hardwood forests. Uh, uh, zones, you had a lot more clearing for, for agriculture and for other land uses as well, but primarily agriculture re- resulted in a lot of clearing. And uh, at its peak in 1910, the forest of the entire province had been cleared to uh, 77% of cleared land in the province. So the forest was down to just a 33%. Um, oh, and as I mentioned, as a lot of that regrew over the 20th century, that rebounded to about half of the province remaining by 1990. So a lot of that regrowth was in that success, successional white spruce forest uh, that I mentioned. So Doug Sobey really dug into uh, impacts of fires. For instance, there were really key fires that, uh, that covered the eastern tip of Prince Edward Island um, and, and destroyed about 12% of the, of the entire province's land mass. Um, there were uh, other key disturbances, but really the shipbuilding one was one he digs into in a lot of detail and shows geographically across the province how uh, ships of different kinds really came out of uh, different woodlots, not surprisingly, but uh, how mixed mixed ships or ships of mixed hardwood and softwood uh, primary um, building types really came from that central uh, upland hardwood ports whenever they were building. But if, when you went more to the east, uh, you would find more juniper ships, and he mapped those using the Lloyd's Register. Uh, and then on the west, you had more spruce ships, over almost 600 spruce ships coming out of those ports in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. So he, he really showed a wealth of data in his chapter. Um, and, and like I say, he's just scratching the surface of what he's done in other works, and we're, we're really pleased to have his, uh, his chapter there. In Rosemary Curley's estimation, why did the 1889 founding of the Natural History Society of Prince Edward Island, as well as Francis Bain's 1890, The Natural History of Prince Edward Island, which I'm familiar with, only amount to a brief spurt of intellectual activity during this period? How did the loss of wildlife habitats further prompt management, conservation, and preservation efforts? Well, one of the realities of Prince Edward Island, one of the visible realities, is that nature, in the sense of wilderness, doesn't exist in the sense that human beings have mediated even their forest cover. And so... If you look at the conservation legislation passed on Prince Edward Island or legislation passed in the first half of the 1800s, the intent is generally to conserve a resource so that we can exploit it. At the same time, the major industries, the shipbuilding industry and agriculture, were having a a devastating effect on the quote-unquote wilderness. So by the late 1800s, 
there is a consciousness on Prince Edward Island that the frontier era has passed and the pioneers are dying off and that we have to move to preserve our history. At the same time, there is a consciousness of the need to understand and preserve the natural history of Prince Edward Island. But the initiatives that are taken at this time, this part of this kind of a Victorian amateurism, um, did not have staying power. It did not uh, create organizations that went on for decades. It was a, a cycle of interest that came and went and then was only renewed later on. But part of the impetus for it was the recognition that uh, much of the natural environment and much of the wilderness or much of the wild environment, the wildlife in it, was growing exotic, rare, or at risk. Uh, natural history societies also tended to include people who valued the natural environment because they liked to hunt or fish. So they appreciated the nature even as they were exploiting it or, you know, in some cases extirpating it. And so you have at the same time as they're uh, beginning to notice that, for example, the bear, black bear, is becoming rare in the late 1800s. And the last black bear, I think, was killed in 1927. Uh, at the same time, a little bit later on, they noticed that the brand, which once were such a numerous fowl, like waterfowl, were getting uh, rare or no longer stopping on Prince Edward Island. They're introducing animals so that they can hunt them. They're introducing animals so that they can raise them to harvest their fur. And when the bottom goes out of the fur market in the World War I era, those exotic animals are released into the wild. And that's why we have the skunk, the raccoon, Neither one of them are a native animal to Prince Edward Island, uh, but they're numerous now because they were introduced to raise for their pelts. So natural history interest began to wax in the late eight, uh, I'm sorry, in the you know, late 1800s, along with the awareness that the wilderness was vanishing. And there are efforts made to conserve the wilderness but again, the perspective is a human one, not for the sake of the wildlife, but for the sake of our enjoyment or use of the wildlife. It's not an uncommon story. So let's uh, dive into your uh, contributions to the volume. First, uh, prof uh, Professor uh, Dr. Novacek, can you explain how and why certain species of algae and seaweed not found on the eastern seaboard north of Cape Cod, wound up in Prince, Edward's Isle, Prince Edward Island's uh, Malpic Bay. In addition, how is the cultural history of Irish moss linked to the rise and fall of female activism as well as eutrophic uh, mismanagement? Okay, so that's a really interesting story, and it all has to do with uh, glaciers. So... Um, uh, during the glacial period, as I said, there was this tremendous weight of ice over Prince Edward Island and the, the eastern seaboard, and um, it pushed the Earth's crust down. So as the glaciers retreated and that weight was lifted from the Earth's crust, it started to rebound. So we have um, 
the glaciers melting by between 10 and 12,000 years ago by by 9,000 years the, the this rebounding is well underway and the upshot of that is that what we recognize as the continental shelf a deep water continental shelf um where we prosecute fisheries in the present day uh was much much shallower it, it that the earth's crust had risen up and brought that continental shelf in some places like the Grand Banks and George's Bank right out of the water. And so um, uh, the Gulf Stream coming from <clears throat> the south had uninhibited access to the offshore of Nova Scotia and came into um, what would have been a much smaller Gulf of St. Lawrence, while <clears throat> the polar current coming from the north, which we call the Labrador Current, would have been deflected off towards Europe by this then landmass of, of the, uh, the Grand Banks and Newfoundland. So the waters were much warmer and much shallower and, and dominated by these currents coming from the south. And those currents brought with them uh, propagules and fragments um, driftwood with uh, various kinds of animals and plants attached. And those animals and plants found a home in our, um, in our waters. But what goes up in geological terms often must go down. And so it is with um, the uh, heavings up of a continental crust is often followed by um, a settling of that same crust. And so um, after about uh, 4,500 years, we have the, the, the crust settling down, the waters are becoming deeper and colder. The Grand Banks and the Georges Banks slip underneath the surface of the sea. And the Labrador current comes streaming down from the Arctic, turning the outer coastal waters of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia into a frigid uh, sea that um, uh, pounded by, by bitterly cold winds in winter, partially ice covered. And this is not hospitable to plants and animals that are used to the warm waters of the Carolinas. And so those, cold, those warm water species die off. They were replaced by cold-tempered Arctic species. But inside of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where Abiguit is cradled on the rave, waves and surrounded by the shallow Magdalene Shelf, there are some species of algae and also snails and other small invertebrates that actually can tolerate those cold winter temperatures and as long as the summer high temperatures reach something above 15 or 18 degrees for a few weeks in the summer, that gives them an opportunity to reproduce. And where there is reproduction, there is life. And so we find species like Dasia baluviana, Chondria, um, Griffithia, all, all these exotic looking um, delicate uh, 
subtropical to warm temperate species of algae that still persist in in bays such as Malpac Bay, where the water temperature will reach 20 degrees or even higher during the summer for a period of weeks. So they, they, they grow rapidly. They're small, rapidly growing plants. They flourish in the brief summer season. They manage to reproduce before the water temperatures dip down in the fall. And then they hunker down under the ice in the form of tiny little uh, pads of tissue or small um, sporlings clinging to bits of rock over the winter. Now, <clears throat> the second part of your question um, uh, pertains to uh, Irish moss, which um, is a plant that would have been recognized by the French and British settlers as one of value both for food and for medicine. And they would have harvested it on uh, a household level uh, for their own use. But um, <clears throat> as of the 1920s, they started, they, there were markets for Irish moss. Um, in the United States, there were uh, processing plants um, established. And those processing plants were tapping not only um, North American resources of Irish moss to produce carrageenan for food processing and, and medicinal uses, but also importing Irish moss from the British Isles, where that industry uh, would have initially developed. Um, but the, the, the war years um, put an end to the safe uh, movement of transport ships across the Atlantic. And so they had to turn increasingly to North American supplies. And that's in those post-war years is when Prince Edward Island and particularly the West End and the village of Miminagash, in more particular detail, became the Irish moss capital of the world, self-proclaimed, and um, <clears throat> harvested Irish moss for, for that uh, American market and, and later for the European market. And so uh, the buyers who came to, uh, to purchase that moss were international global... Uh, they came in the name of... Um, uh, international corporations with a global reach. And so this was, uh, this our tiny islands, uh, another connection to, um, to global corporate capitalism. Uh, and it was one of our first ventures into global <laughs> corporate capitalism um, to be per, uh, followed by the industrialization of agriculture and the in the 1960s and 70s, and and the development of the potato as as uh, a major um, uh, product for for export, and the two industries, the Irish moss industry and um, the industrial agricultural industry, have some interesting parallels in that they overreached their local resources. They employed technologies, very destructive technologies. In the case of Irish moss, bottom-dragging technologies that ruined the very beds that they were exploiting. In the case of agriculture, you know, relatively massive, um, uh, heavy uh, tractors and, and uh, deep plowing technologies and uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides that ruined the soil base 
that they depended on to produce their potatoes and and uh, and other crops. But the <clears throat> the global uh, markets are ruthless. Uh, they demand more than anyone can produce, um, and they don't really mind whether they drive local industries, local people, local households uh, to ruin because they can simply pick up and move on to another island, another mainland, another uh, center of production and uh, abandon the people who for generations have supported their industry and their profits. And uh, that's what happened with with the Irish moss industry. Um, it happened to the potato seed industry. And, um, and now we are struggling with uh, the fairly regular threats from um, the large corporations who, who drive the potato uh, processing industry. The threat is always give us more land, give us more water, give us more people, give us more cheap labor, or we will withdraw from your island and leave you destitute. <laughs> and, and these are the kinds of threats that um, governments feel that they they must pay attention to. Now, the Irish moss industry was was also very interesting in the role of women and children in the industry. And when uh, the harvesters turned to drag raking from uh, boats with engines instead of hand raking or simply picking what Mother Nature delivered to the shore, um, that involved increased expenditures. Now you had a boat to maintain and paint. Now you had gasoline to purchase for your, or diesel to purchase, uh, to put in your fuel tank. Uh, now you had mechanic, mechanical, um, devices, uh, that needed lubrication and maintenance. There were a whole host of extra expenses, but the price of the moss never budged. Um, by then, the global capitalists had um, sources of, of even cheaper labor in the Philippines and Indonesia and Southeast Asia uh, and, and Latin America. Um, they, were, they had no compelling reason to provide a living income to the harvesters in Prince Edward Island. They had uh, chemists who had determined that a little bit of our very high-quality carrageenan went a long way if it was blended with gums and, and carrageenans of lower quality that could be sourced from aquaculture in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, for pennies. So um, in response to that and in desperation, um, it was the women who were a dominant actual workforce. I mean, the men certainly went out in boats and did the harvesting, but it was the women who did the backbreaking work of of drying and tossing the moss, of sorting and cleaning the moss. And, uh, and they, uh, after unemployment insurance became an option, they delivered it to the buyers and they got their stamps so that there would be an extra unemployment insurance check to support their families over the winter. For them, it was a critical source and one of the few sources they had of making ready cash that they controlled and that they could dedicate to community well-being and to the church and to children's education. So for them, this was extremely important, and that's why they organized strikes, and that's why 
they took the, the corporations to task. Unfortunately, they didn't succeed in getting a better price. Uh, but what was left to them was a radicalized social justice organization, Women in Support of Fishing, that continued on to struggle and fight for economic justice for rural communities on Prince Edward Island, and who became engaged in environmental and uh, issues of, of the governance of fisheries and fisheries management. So it's, um, it's a very interesting and inspiring a story of um, women's engagement and agency and power and capacity um, rooted in uh, a part of Prince Edward Island that is often neglected and rejected as a kind of uh, backwater, backwoods, poorly educated, um, uh, neck of the woods, <laughs> so to speak, or coastal area. Yeah. Anyway, the, the 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 history of both of those those industries really brings to light and and makes completely clear the the limits of an of the natural world when modern technologies are brought to bear at a scale that is inappropriate to the resource base, and it became extremely clear to everyone living on this island, and even to the government eventually admitted that the development path upon which we were uh, walking was a completely unsustainable one. Thank you. Professor McFadgen, can you elaborate on your argument that the PEI 19th century golden age did not directly benefit all farmers? In addition, how did muscle mud digging help remedy fodder shortages and signal the introduction of pasture and animal husbandry to an island of largely potatoes and cash crops? Sure. Um, in my chapter, The Fertile Crescent, which uh, makes sense if you look at the map, um, I argue and pitifully pun, I'm sorry, that <laughs> PEI has often been seen through the eyes of its most important crop, the potato. <laughs> uh, but um, but really, uh, if we look at the sort of long durée of agriculture in Prince Edward Island, it's really about trying to make a variety of strategies work over time. And potatoes were a relatively small part of that until quite recently. So at first, as I mentioned, this uh, golden age, we really have to kind of go back a little bit to before that Acadian, uh, Acadian French Acadian settlers were the first agriculturalists on the island with uh, in the 1720s until their deportation or fleeing in the, in the 1750s, 1758. Um, uh, many of them did return uh, in the 19th century, and there's still an, a vibrant Acadian population today. Um, but the Golden Age was really at the, came on the heels of British settlement, uh, most rapid in the 1820s up until its peak in 1880, and that's when population hit its all-time high of 110,000, I think, around that point, um, and, and actually was followed by a, a period of out-migration, which if you know much about the, kind of the social ecological transition of, the, of modern society, you know that rural settlement is, is typically followed by agrarian um, stability, and then often uh, rural out-migration as urbanization and industrialization uh, draws people to cities, and more and less farmers are able to produce more on the same space. But so this golden age was really in that 1880s to early 20th century period. The island agriculture was best known for, uh, well, it was, was famous for seed potatoes, 
for fox farming, for a growing, thriving dairy sector uh, in the early 20th century. But I argue in this that it's really you really need to understand livestock and the important role that they played in the sort of long 150 years before, before say, the potato uh, agriculture of the last 20 or 30. Um, so, so that is that brings us well. The land question is another issue that's very important in PEI history. I won't go into it too much, other than to say that after 1767, a lottery system uh, gave away land to British absentee landlords. Uh, it was a tenure landhold system for the early 19th century. Um, it's, it's much hotly debated whether and how that led to what I'm about to say, but there was by the late, 20th, late 19th century a great deal of inequality in this golden age, in the so-called golden age. Um, and by, by just looking at the evidence available in censuses and archival records and using GIS mapping to kind of uh, show this, we see that, uh, yeah, there was, even in the livestock uh, mixed husbandry agricultural system, there wasn't uh, a kind of equal access to resources across the entire province. And indeed, the 1870s show that there were, uh, I, did, I did one map that kind of shows um, how much feed and fodder would have been required for most animals that existed on farms, and then how much was available through local, uh, through just local supplies of hay and other, other feed crops. And, and indeed, like the, the extremities, the far east and west of the province, were always were perennially uh, uh, in, in a feed crisis, whereas the central areas had much more robust and advanced farms with uh, well-fed animals. So, however, the island soil um, is is highly acidic and requires um, treatment, requires pH balance before it can actually produce the kinds of crops that we know in the in today and in the twentieth century. But that wasn't available. There were no local limestone deposits. There were no local kilns. And a surprisingly progressive conservation law in mid, in mid 19th century prevented people from using oyster, uh, oyster um, with heaps and middens, right? So these were actually protected, which is why archaeologists were able to find some of those uh, results. But, um, but what farmers did instead was they turned to this substance that was kind of a regional and local innovation called muscle mud, which you mentioned in your question. Um, and muscle mud was really digging the not heaps and biddens from shores, but digging live oysters and, and some dead oyster beds from rivers and estuaries, uh, including Malpec, including uh, the West River and, and several other key rivers like the Medec River, and dredging the bottoms of those rivers and taking the shells and basically spreading live uh, live oysters, dead oysters, any oysters at all on the field. And of course, oysters are highly calcareous and they're full of um, they were able to balance the pH for farmers. And so what you see in the 1880s and 90s is this huge uh, advance in fodder crops. And what that does is it makes the livestock economy even more vibrant. But again, it doesn't really address the problem of inequality. This is, this is occurring, again, mostly in those central areas. Um, they had more access, but they were, also, um, they were also industrialized in agriculture in some ways from, the, from that, even that early period. So across the 20th century, we, uh, we see this period of out-migration, which you mentioned, and that's because there was no urban center to speak of in Prince of Ground, or indeed even Maritimes, that drew and built large, uh, large industrial manufacturing uh, centers for, for the local population. So what you had is people, as they said, going down the road, and that often meant going to the Boston states, as they were called here, um, the 
New England states or going eventually to Ontario and Quebec to find work in factories. And the population indeed dropped. That's when we see the reversion and regrowth of island forests and the abandonment of quite a lot of land, the aging of farmers, the, um, uh, the shortages of labor. And, uh, and it's really not until the sort of mid and, and early, uh, mid 20th century, early 1960s, that social scientists and rural development programs turn their eye from the federal level right to, right to provinces like PEI and other rural uh, areas and say, hey, these places are backward. They need to be fixed and corrected and, uh, and injected with capital or, or whatever other sort of high modern um, inventions we can use to, uh, to bring them into the 20th century. And so in 1969, one of the sort of watershed moments is the, is the launch of a federal provincial comprehensive development plan, uh, which is now 50 years old, launched in March 1969. And in that, it was really meant to revive all kinds of sectors, but primarily agriculture and, uh, and fisheries too. Uh, but th this plan was to inject $700 million into the local economy. And its stated purpose was to grow agriculture, was to make it big was to get small people out and to consolidate farms so that they would go big. And as I argue in one point, you either go big or go spruce. And that's the local idiom for letting those spruce hedgerows grow up and cover the fields and basically abandon uh, the land. So this was a sort of product of the 1960s, which is where that chapter ends. So... Can you also address Professor McFasian? Can you also address how and why uh, how and why did 20th century outmigration contribute to reforestation, reversion, and labor shortages in the early 20th century, while abandoned farms, monoculture, and harsh rural lifeways later culminated in the idea of small is beautiful and the comprehensive development plan? Further, how did the potato processing sector and industrial farming impact soil and wa water quality as well as wildlife habitats? Right. So the last part of your question is addressed mainly in Jean-Paul Arsenault's chapter, uh, which follows right after mine. It looks at agriculture since 1970. But that it really is a sort of pivotal moment. It's locally called the break um, in, in sort of the social and economic history of the province, sort of a hard break with the past. And um, I do argue that it takes a little longer into the 70s and 80s before we see that full scale industrialization of agriculture. And that's partly because there was a pretty big environmentalist and countercultural movement um, that some of the previously mentioned um, uh, phenomena like the, well, the back to the landers, the um, uh, Institute of Man and Resources, and both of these are addressed uh, by Alan McCachran and summarized in Graham uh, Wynn's chapter earlier. But those those engendered a kind of um, appreciation for the small farm, for the small community. And uh, E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, a uh, famous uh, uh, economic text from the, from the time really caught the eye of some of these uh, uh, bureaucrats and and provincial leaders who who had, until then had really embraced this high modern and, and federal led initiative to develop right to make, to go big and so they there was a sort of about face in the 1970s and uh, a lot of people kind of um, tried to embrace the family farm and and uh, make sure that it lasted and survived this transition and so that kicked off the comprehensive development plan kicked off a whole um, well a half century now of roundtables and land royal commissions 
and uh, other legislative efforts to uh, to protect uh, land holders. And so in the 1980s, we had a land protection um, legislation that prevented uh, prevented any farm from getting too big. And so uh, between 300 and 1,000 acres. And then it also prevented non-residents from, from buying up large sections of the island. This is a hotly uh, contested issue even today in, in election time. And so these were various efforts at, uh, at sort of preventing. But uh, the march of uh, modernity continued and, and agriculture, as it does elsewhere, is, is really driven toward large scale monocrop agriculture. And that succeeded in the 80s and 90s with, uh, with, an, with enormous potato production. This was um, unprecedented in island history. Island potatoes before that had been for seed. Now they were for restaurants. They were table potatoes. And they, uh, and in particular, kind of long season uh, russet, I believe, was um, was russet bourbon <clears throat> potato was used for uh, for restaurants for making those long French fries that, as we say, hang out of the box. You need that long uh, potato with it that it takes a long growing season. And so the problem with that, of course, is that it it tills the soil and it leaves the soil exposed until the very end of the season when uh, the rains and followed by snow. And winter comes. And the problem with this was that in the 90s, it was immediately evident that these soils were loose. They were loose and uh, they were prone to erosion. And a lot of it was ending up in our waterways and in the estuaries. Uh, this caused everything from river siltation to the transfer of nutrients and the uh, subsequent anoxic events in waterways. Um, uh, the, if not destruction, the, uh, the stress on fisheries and on aquaculture, near shore aquaculture. So it, it caused a variety of environmental problems. And uh, this is where sort of the, the next wave of environmentalism in activism and PEI um, emerged out of the 1990s and, and really directed to that expansion of industrial agriculture addressed in Jean-Paul Arsenault's uh, chapter. Um, yeah, however, it's, there's really been that tension between small and big ever since the, the post-war period. Um, and one could also argue that uh, that we have the kind of robust economy and uh, and and, and uh, fairly high quality of life in the province today because of some of that the, the development dollars. And so the the jury's out, and we're as environmental historians, we're still debating the impact of policy on land use, uh, both in the sixties, seventies, and and what the, what it's given us today. And, and really, this is. This is all the more pressing as we decide how to go forward with, uh, with agriculture, the most important primary source in the industry on the, in the province. Even, Ryan, just to, just to cite one small example of the effect on wildlife, uh, the number of acres being farmed today is smaller than it was a century ago, but the methods of agriculture involve, I'm sorry, involve large machinery. And so in order to use those cost-effective kinds of machinery, you knock down all you know, the hedgerows that used to divide our fields. The fields were traditionally quite small because it was a mixed form of agriculture. So you knock down the hedgerows so there's room for the equipment, and animals lose their pathways to get from a woodlot to a woodlot. And it really does affect their habitat and their ability to migrate around the landscape. And that, again, underlines the nature of the landscape on Prince Edward Island, where the nature, quote unquote, nature and the uh, you know, built up kind of landscape are totally enmeshed. And in, 
that was a landscape agriculture created, and it's also now destroying it. And, and through the 80s and 90s also, I mean, the, the, the major trigger for pub, public engagement was fish kills. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and bird yeah. and bird kills mm-hmm. um, because of the the uh, just radically abundant use of pesticides that, in retrospect, you know, most of them have been banned by most other jurisdictions by now. Um, chlorothalonil and so on. I mean, just birds falling out of the air, fish going belly up in the streams, and this is a fishing and hunting, you know traditionally fishing and hunting kind of place and 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 it was a huge wake up call when you know the, the fishing season started and people would go out and cast a line in the water and there would be no trout or salmon um and uh that plus um the estuaries uh, being choked with sea lettuce and and uh, going white in the summer in the in the heat of summer and going anoxic uh, these are so visible to rural people. And on Prince Edward Island, even if you're living in Charlottetown, you're rural. <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're out and about and on the beach and in the, in, uh, on the walking trails. Uh, um, there's no reason why not to. You can be there in 20 minutes, uh, no matter where you live. On Prince Edward Island, you're within striking distance of what is left of nature. And uh, people spend a lot of time out there, and they notice. It's just it's a nexus of issues, economic issues and drivers, changes in the form of agriculture, industrial agriculture. People, when they were growing 115,000 acres, spuds every year, the rotation of crops was dispensed with, the nitrates in the fertilizer had to be increased in order to stoke the soil to produce the crops. All of this has a domino effect, and on islands, you notice sooner than other places. We are the canaries of the environment. Professor McDonald, can you explain why fishing and fisheries were significant to the French prior to the Seven Years' War, but then gradually declined when the island came under British control in a tenant system, the New England reciprocity era notwithstanding? Also, how and why did the rise of lobster fishing and canning, as well as mussel harvesting, alter landscape and labor in Prince Edward Island? Well, Ryan, those questions span much of the history of the fishery on Prince Edward Island. Uh, when the French first arrived to settle in, you know, permanently on Prince Edward Island in 1720, the driver for their colonization was to exploit the fishery. And cod was the fish of choice, as you know. It was the most, you know, common or I, what we say, it, it, it was a lucrative fish. Anyway, the French um, invested quite heavily in the fishery on Prince Edward Island during the French era, which was 1720 to 58. However, um, the companies that were given a charter to operate a fishery uh, didn't do well because of the vagaries of operating a fishery in a wilderness environment uh, a long way away from your markets with all of the risks of shipwreck and uh, plunge in the price of fish, other people coming to catch fish in areas where you supposedly had a monopoly. 
So while the French era saw a lot of emphasis on you know, the fishery, much of the value of the fishery was for the settlers themselves to feed themselves. When the British came to control the island in 1763 by treaty, uh, one of the initial attractions uh, that led to the acquisition of the townships by landlords, etc., was the opportunity to fish. And a number of the early owners of the land uh, were involved in the fishery and invested a considerable amount of money in the fishery, and virtually all of them went bankrupt as well or struggled financially for the same reasons that the French had. It's a difficult industry, requires a lot of investment, and there is a kind of a, what would you say, a precariousness to it. Early on, the government of Prince Edward Island made a decision that the future of the colony lay in agriculture. Not surprising when you consider how most of the island is arable land in contrast to the rest of the region. So the potential there was seen to top the potential in the fishery. So rather than have the settlers splitting their time and effort between a fishery and agriculture, the authorities encouraged the settlers to stick with agriculture. And enough money was lost by the investors in the fishery to convince islanders that that was a pretty good idea. And so even though we were surrounded by fish, codfish and mackerel and other kinds of species, islanders learned not to get involved in the fishery as an industry. They fished again to feed themselves. And so the tenant economy, the fact that the island was essentially given away in 1767 to a handful of absentee landlords who then rented farms out to the colonists, that also probably was a discouragement for the fishery because if you were a tenant, you had to make your rent. And while the fish might well feed you, it wasn't going to pay your rent unless you were able to invest quite heavily in the nets, in the hooks and lines, in the stages, in the boats and the vessels and the barrels for bait, etc., etc., that was required to make an industry out of the fishery. And so being a tenant farmer, they lacked the resources, but also the motive to invest in the fishery. And as a result, our fishery languished uh, until the mid-1800s. And the resources were being exploited, but they were being exploited by people from New England who were coming up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence initially to fish for cod, and after 1830 to fish for mackerel. Now, mackerel did become the king of the fishery on Prince Edward Island by the reciprocity era, partly because of investment by Americans in the fishery on Prince Edward Island. But the fishing industry only really took off as a major industry in the late 1870s, and that was because of the introduction of the canning of lobsters. Lobsters had always been a plentiful fish on Prince Edward Island, but until you found a way to get the fish from where you caught it to where the lobsters were going to be eaten uh, before they went bad, you didn't have a fishery for lobster. And the technology to take lobster, to shell it and can it, solved that problem. 
need drove the industry as well. The shipbuilding industry on Prince Edward Island collapsed almost overnight in the late 1870s. And so investors and islanders were needing a new industry to take up the slack. And it turned out to be lobster. And there was a lobster boom, which uh, nearly destroyed the lobster stocks until we pulled back from the brink of disaster. And then it became a stable industry for many years. Again, transportation technology played a role in how lobster fishery affected the landscape. Until you had a mechanized lobster fishery where the boats were powered by engines, and until you had asphalt for transporting the fish once it was caught, you needed to process the fish as quickly as you could. And so where you fished had to be close to where you processed, and that meant the canneries that were built were built like a necklace around the coastline of Prince Edward Island. And at the height of the canning era, there were nearly 250 of them scattered along our coastline, some of them quite large and elaborate, some of them little more than shacks. But all of them created a new architecture along our shore where there was a supply of water, the fresh kind of water that you needed for the processing, where you could launch your boats and land your catch, they built a cannery. And those canneries produced societies because people, because they couldn't travel from their farms to the shore and back in the spring of the year because the roads were bad, people moved to the shore for months at a time and they established a new kind of a community uh, that was linked to the environment and to the resource, which I find to be quite fascinating. And uh, it again underscores something that came up when Irene was talking about the mossing industry. For centuries, we have underappreciated the vital role played by women in the fishery, even when there weren't the ones out in the boat to catch the fish. Women were gathering moss. Women were the primary employees of the factories as well, and it provided a vital source of income for women in a society where there were very few opportunities for women to find employment. Now, you asked as well about mussel harvesting, and I want to answer that in two parts. That's really essentially a question about aquaculture. Aquaculture has a long history on Prince Edward Island because not only did we experiment in the late 1800s with trying to grow lobsters in you know, lagoons and hatcheries, but we also, in the early part of the 1900s, launched an ambitious plan, which was abetted by the government of Prince Edward Island, to farm oysters. Not to gather them in the wild, but to plant them like a crop on the bottom of different kinds of estuaries and bays, to grow them and harvest them, to provide a guaranteed supply. And the Malpec oyster was among the finest in the world, and it fetched a premium in the marketplace in places like you know, Montreal. That was an environmental disaster because in order to jumpstart the oyster industry, they calculated it would take five years for an oyster to grow from spat to a size that you, know, you could harvest. Some of the companies that were established started to import small oysters from the United States from the Chesapeake Bay region and Long Island Sound. And along with the oysters, they managed to import a a pathogen, 
which killed virtually every oyster on Prince Edward Island in the bays where it spread. And that essentially killed our experiment in aquaculture until the 1970s when the government encouraged a number of you know, different operators in the private part of the economy, the, you know, the private sector, to experiment with growing you know, mussels, blue mussels, island blue mussels, as they're called. There had to be experimentation uh, because the methods that worked in Europe did not work on Prince Edward Island, where the habitat was covered in ice during the winter. The industry had some false starts. But in the 1980s and 90s, the mussel industry took off and pretty much every available acre of water where you could grow oyster, I'm sorry, grow, I'm sorry, mussels, uh, was actually leased to entrepreneurs, some quite small operators, some quite large, to grow mussels and forged a reputation across the continent uh, for the mussel stock we managed to you know have a you know brand for ourselves that in turn has affected the environment and the habitat um, partly because there are people who complain about the obstruction and um, if you have a boat that it's hard to sail to you know navigate because of all the muscle lines and of course as often happens we have unwittingly imported a number of different kinds of pests which have cut into the profit margins in the mussel industry. And there is a limited amount of habitat for the industry to expand into. Uh, so the mussel industry has changed the surface of the water, but it's also changed the local economy and aquaculture, as most experts observe, is probably the wave of the future, uh, the hunting for fish, the fishery in the wild is rapidly using up all of the available stocks. And so possibly oysters and mussels are a way forward for how to continue to have a sustainable form of you know, fishery. Uh, we could talk about lobsters, but there's an inexplicable situation, not entirely inexplicable, but lobster catches in the mid-70s suddenly started increasing after years of being more or less stable and stagnant, and the price and the catch went up at the same time, and it transformed the fishery. But there are government controls and regulations which the DFO would tell us is responsible for the sustainability of the lobster industry, but I don't think it can wholly explain the huge increase in catch without the eradication of the lobster stock. And I think it has something to do with something that Irene has written about and that we touch on in the chapter on the fishery, and that is unbalancing in the ecosystem. Uh, among other things, we have eliminated the cod, and codfish eat small lobster. And so one of the predators that kept lobster stocks down has been removed, and the predator that remains is us. If poss possible, please trace shifts in the history of Prince Edward Island tourist guidebooks and photographs. 
from 19th century self-promotion of rural and an urban urban expansion, as well as 20th century unchanging pastoral landscapes too, as Alan McCurkin describes it, an accidental tourist industry of beach serenity and seclusion. Well, Alan McCurkin and I have been working for a long time now on a history of the tourism industry on Prince Edward Island, and we were you know, delighted that Alan produced this chapter for our book a visual history of the tourism industry, how we're been you know, essentially imaged. Um, and Alan traces continuity and change. So since the beginning of the tourism industry and the tourism industry begins to gather a momentum in the 1870s, but it dates back to the middle of the 1800s, but when it starts to gather a momentum, what we promoted from the beginning was the pastoral landscape of Prince Edward Island and the pastoral inhabitants of it and the restorative environmental effects of the beach, the seaside. And so the imaging, if you look at it from far enough away, the imaging appears to be a consistent sort of a promotion of the pastoral landscape, and the seaside. But Alan actually has noticed some subtle changes over time. In the beginning, the tourism industry, you know, in its kind of infancy, was closely linked with the promotion of the province in general. So tourism literature was really promotional literature, and it was aimed at people who might come to visit, at people who might invest in the island and people that might immigrate. And so while there are images of the rural landscape, there are also lots of images in the beginning of urban areas because we're trying to convince uh, the immigrant, the investor, or even our tourists that we're a bustling, progressive uh, kind of a society. So there are lots of photographs of urban areas, public buildings, etc. But at the same time, there is a promotion of that pastoral you know, rural landscape, that rolling quilted landscape of woodlot and farmland. Over time, tourism becomes important enough and immigration uh, as impossible enough or as you know, not likely that tourism becomes the dominant reason for producing the guidebooks and the promotional books, not business per se and not immigration. And thus, what's attractive to tourists becomes the dominant kind of imaging in the guidebooks. So instead of trying to emphasize how modern we are and you know, the bustling nature of our business life, we go the opposite direction and we start to emphasize that we're a retreat from modernity and the evils of modernity, a serene playset of time that allows you to recover from the urban angst of industrial life. And the imaging supports that. One of Alan's curious observations is that while we are an island and while today we emphasize all of the fun things that happen on the beach, 
that the early tourism booklets tend to show more rivers and fields and forests than they do shots of the beach. The beach is always important, and it's seen as a particular kind of a restorative, uh, not just the salt water, but the salt sea air, the, uh, the ozone, as they used to call it. But the ozone spread over the whole island because we're so small. So you didn't have to just stay at the beach to get the benefit of the healthy air. After the Second World War, tourism starts booming globally for a variety of reasons but that we don't need to get into. And it starts to boom on Prince Edward Island as well. And we professionalize the tourism industry more and more. It was also the era of the baby boom. So in the 1960s, you have young families with children, not a lot of money yet. They need to vacation, and they need to find things for their children to do. So there's a bit of a paradox. You come to Prince Edward Island to get away from it all, but there has to be lots of activities for your children. And the images tend to show you know, crowded scenes of people playing in the surf and playing on the beach. That slowly fades as the boomers grow up. We go back to an image of serenity and the possibility of, you know, of having a beach all to yourself rather than having to share it with 500,000 other people on Coney Island. So the scenes get less crowded. Uh, there is a, an interesting jumping back and forth between generic images, a typical beach scene, a typical uh, a rural scene to the tourism guides of the 1980s, where for political reasons, you promote everybody and everything. So uh, that had its day as well, where there had to be a promotion and a, a mention of every attraction on Prince Edward Island. In the recent past, Alan argues that uh, the tourism images change every year, but they share a desire to show the island as it truly is, but in its best light. So we keep only the best of the pictures. And experiential tourism is becoming more and more trendy. And so a lot of the illustrations in the very the recent past have been about doing authentic island things, as if no experience is authentic um, all experiences are real, but there are certain kinds of experiences like you know, handicrafts or digging for clams or eating lobsters at a lobster supper. Those are deemed authentic island experiences and those are illustrated as well. And so over time, you see a consistency. We have always been a pastoral landscape promoting ourselves as a serene escape from urban life. After all, we can't be Vegas, and we don't want to be <laughs> Vegas. But within that, there has been some interesting evolution and change. Now, according to Kathleen Stewart, how does the history of transitions in energy supply and usage across Pittsburgh Island, from sails to steamships to a fossil fuel economy, which actually included a short-lived ban on motor cars, inform the present-day social capital of PEI energy policy? Well, Kathleen um, starts out by making her uh, central argument that uh, 
this little island doesn't have any resources of coal or oil or natural gas. We don't have any big rivers that we can dam up and turn into hydroelectricity. We don't have any sources of, you know, fissionable nuclear fuel. Um, so if you want to, uh, you know, support people, um, stay warm in winter, uh, run a business, you're going to have to beg, borrow, steal, or invent some sort of means of producing heat and, uh, and power. So, and, and her argument is that that necessity that, that islanders have over time and in various waves risen to the challenge of that necessity in a, in a variety of ways, um, serial adoptions of different forms of, of, uh, and, and opportunities for, for, um, for generating power. Um, first, I mean, first of all, it was just um, Mi'kmaq people on the land powering their own canoes. Um, then it became tenant farmers um, uh, struggling with oxen and, and, and horses uh, to get the job done and chopping down trees and, and burning them. Um, uh, wind was always a, a major factor in the early days, and uh, we, we capitalized on wind by building wind-powered ships and uh, uh, generating, generating a, an industry from that. But the coming of the steamship, coal-fired uh, engines, uh, could have stopped to all that while plus we had pretty much run out of wood suitable for building ships by then. We'd been very efficient at chopping down trees and burning <laughs> them. And, um, uh, and, and, and so it goes. We were, we were very keen on, uh, on gas light and even more keen on electrical lights. Fabulous. Not so keen on motor cars, as you mentioned. Um, banned them for a while. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there were a couple of uh, hardy priests who who uh, drove their motor cars anyway, and I think eventually turned things around. Um, uh, uh, then there came the railway. Well, we demanded a railway. We demanded roads. Uh, kind of held the country hostage. Uh, we demanded pavement. Came to rue the day. Um, never really. Uh, but once the individual motor cars became an option, I mean the railroad. The, the, the writing was on the wall for the railroad. Uh, once uh, uh, we could uh, bring 1960s technology into the 1990s and get ourselves a bridge and depend on transport trucks instead of ferry boats, we, we, uh, we went for that big time. And, and um, you know, one would argue, suffered the consequences of that as well. Um, and all in the name of progress. But uh, as a power poor uh, small island, we still struggle. Uh, there was um, a brilliant period of time in the 1970s that has been woven in and out of uh, various uh, threads of history here around the Institute of um, Man and Resources and the ARC. Um, Pierre Trudeau arriving by helicopter to tell us how fabulous we were and uh, uh, solar panels and solar water heaters popping up on roofs all over Charlottetown and even out into the nether reaches of the countryside. Um, 
but then, you know, the collapse in the price of oil uh, very quickly persuaded islanders that it was easier and more convenient just to flip a switch and go back to the grid. Uh, <clears throat> but the lessons that we learned in the 1970s weren't entirely forgotten. The stories persisted, and a lot of the people who were attracted to the island in that area, that sort of heady period of experimentation, they never left. Uh, they stayed on. They became architects and builders and developers and, and uh, newspaper correspondents and uh, influencers of politics and society. And uh, they're with us today, and they're, they're still uh, carrying on. Well, now they're Green Party candidates and all sorts of getting up to all sorts of, of um, other exploits. Uh, and so we've benefited over a long historical period of that, that flirtation with sustainability and energy efficiency and alternative economic uh, development and, and um, renewable um, energy. So the emergence of wind as a resource, uh, the, the beg, borrow and stealing of uh, wind technologies had a few hiccups, I'll, I'll say. I mean, we have had our um, <clears throat> wind uh, power companies going bankrupt and uh, we, the landscape is still littered with windmills that never really worked. Um, but uh, uh, we're now, when 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 the um, uh, the research that the, that was established in the seventies bore fruit, and uh, and um, wind power went on the market at a higher price than conventional power. Islanders flocked to to support it, to buy, to purchase those units of power um, at the higher price to ensure that that uh, alternative energies were on the table and going to be supported by the government. And now we have a small uh, uh, but rapidly growing uh, solar sector in spite of the fact that the provincial government provides no feed-in tariff or explicit incentives to the adoption of, of solar power. And that is being done not by companies who want to exploit our wind and sell it offshore, which which was another big hurdle to the development of wind. Islanders went a bit sour when they went, when when they came to understand that the wind was not uh, to bring down our power bills, but to support uh, the corporations that were providing our power to people on the mainland, and that in order to get it there, they were going to push their power corridors through the, the vestiges of our natural protected areas and put it along our walking trails. And um, so that, that uh, the new went off of, of the wind power industry, but solar has been adopted by individual households. I've got 30 panels on my own house. I'm providing power to Maritime Electric, even if they don't pay me for it. <laughs> and even though I have to pay the taxes for generating that power <laughs> and allowing them to sell it for me. Um, uh, the fact is that we really need renewable uh, to get on to some kind of renewable energy bandwagon. And there are enough enterprising young people on Prince Edward Island and older people who remember the 70s who are willing to invest and take that kind of a, take that kind of a risk. Um, so I think we're very fortunate on Prince Edward Island that we do have that 
still have that spirit of enterprise and self-sufficiency that is very much rooted in in the you know the Protestant and Catholic ethics of of hard work and and self-sufficiency that that are part of our rural rural heritage. Um, so, I mean, we have a lot to learn from our energy history. It, it, it has been very fitful. And uh, uh, we've gone down some, some dead ends and rescued ourselves. And, and, but we're, we seem to be slow and sporadic learners from our energy history. But I think we are, we are finally making some progress. Uh, we've had electric buses, and then, and then they disappeared. We thought we would have hydrogen-powered buses. That was very flavor of the month for a while, but they've never actually appeared. Uh, <laughs> uh, we did manage to drive the railway into economic collapse and eventually abandon it. Um, but you know that we do. We I think there is evidence in our energy history that we do slowly learn from our development history. What is the relevance of this volume to the study of Prince Edward Island, green interdependencies and the economics of biodiversity, and as you already alluded to, history and the study of memory? We have very long memories on Prince Edward Island. Wow. <laughs> um, countryside and, and, and good portions of the cities are populated by people who go back generations, many generations. Uh, we've ex one of our major exports has always been young people uh, as a labor force to other provinces. But the family farm, the family land, the attachment to that land persists. The stories of hardworking people making it on their own against all odds persist. They continue to be an inspiration as do the, 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 the legacy of homemade music homemade stories, storytelling. Um, it is translated into a flourishing music and small-scale film industry on the island. They're now connected and enmeshed in uh, uh, a food, uh, a local food revival and cultural flourishing and restaurants and entrepreneurship around uh, development of new and novel and experimental Food-related products and and, um, and and tourism offerings and restaurants and so on, um, food festivals, farmers markets. Uh, that is where the growth is these days. It's it's small. It's it's human scale. It's intimate. It's connected to culture. It's connected to history, and it's very hopeful. If I can just add to Rini's point about. History and to Ed's earlier point about islands as museums, which really comes from Graham Newman's chapter, we have um, a long memory. But the advantage, in some ways, is that the transition to an industrialized economy, a primary resource economy, is very recent, and so there's still an entire generation alive today that remembers a different world. They remember, in some ways, not a prehistoric world or anything, but they remember a an agrarian world. They remember. Uh, a world that's you know, in other jurisdictions is very distant history. 
And so that's an advantage for historians. We can speak with them. They can tell their, they can share their stories. And we can use that wisdom going forward into, uh, into a new and uh, a more sustainable future. I think a generation ago, we were writing a history of Prince Edward Island. People were writing a history of Prince Edward Island. I think today the population of Prince Edward Island is more aware than ever that we are living in a fragile world environmentally. Uh, Islands teach us the lesson of limits. Claire Campbell makes that point in the concluding essay to this collection. Islanders are beginning to appreciate the risk to our groundwater. Islanders are beginning to appreciate the problems of erosion, which is stripping away our valuable resource. Islanders are beginning to appreciate the high cost of electricity, and they're beginning to appreciate sustainability and what it truly means. Something that our forefathers and mothers of 50 and 80 years ago knew instinctively, we're learning intellectually. It is the way forward, and history is a map. And I would just like to... um to point out as perhaps a concluding point, to please take note of the person to whom this volume is dedicated. Raven Lowe came from a long, um, uh, (laughs) well-known line of of farmers. His his father, Garrett, was a a pioneer in potato breeding. Island Sunshine Potato is, is a legacy of the Lowe family. The the brothers and sisters have have been involved in environmental issues and social justice for for a very long period of time. They are an exemplary family. And and Raymond uh, was a pioneer in in the the new economic movement of of organic agriculture and and local value-added processing, of finding novel markets, of, of, of... encouraging the traceability of our products so that the consumer in Japan can, can, can look at um, a jar of, of cold-pressed uh, uh, vegetable oil or, or frozen blueberries or, or Island, you know, Anne of Green Gables chocolate and know exactly who made it and, and where the cows were milked and who milked those cows <laughs> and what was put on that land and and how many children the farmer has mm-hmm. and 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 uh, connect to this ongoing story of this island. I so and one last thing that is to say that I'm really indebted to these uh, co-editors of the line, but I think we can all agree that we're deeply indebted to the contributors who worked so hard to write each one of these chapters and bring their expertise, but also to the attendees of the original conference. Many um, nationally renowned environmental historians stopped by and gave a keynote or just took place, took part of the event. So thank you to all of our contributors and and guests. So is there any uh, upcoming uh, articles, presentations, books that um, one or all three of you are contributing to? Are you going on vacation? What's next for you? Uh, right now, I'm one of three editors of a collection of essays dealing with uh, the kind of environmental history of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. 
and that's going to be published by McGill-Cranes University Press this fall. And that will include a number of essays on Prince Edward Island, but it will be looking at the Gulf of St. Lawrence as uh, a place and as a concept. So that's what I'm up to right now. He's also writing that tourism book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and uh, trying to finish that history of tourism. And I uh, am happy to report I've won a Canada Research Chair, which allows me to, uh, to continue this research for years to come. And I've just finished a stint with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans as the chief research scientist for our the one and only marine protected area, the postage stamp protected area of Basin Head, which in itself is a capsule of everything that can go wrong in an estuary <laughs> on a small island in, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in an era of climate change. And so I'm embarking on what feels like three consecutive PhD theses worth of research reporting and writing. And um, I hope that uh, those volumes will also help um, to guide uh, scientists, watershed workers, fishermen, fisheries managers, managers um, in, in the future in tackling the many environmental uh, problems that beset our beleaguered ocean and its estuaries. Well, congratulations to all three of you. And I really thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. The book is, the volume is Time and a Place, an Environmental History of Prince Edward Island, published by McGill-Queens University Press. On behalf of uh, Dr. Novacek, Professor Mafajan, Professor McDonald, this is Ryan Tripp signing off from the New Book Networks, both the History and Environmental Studies channels. Please turn tune in next time. <laughs>